Welcome to Losing My Religion, a podcast for and about you. It's the audio diary of a humanist celebrant, a humanist celebrant who used to be a student for the Roman Catholic priesthood. I've come a long way. I'm Joe Armstrong and many questions will be asked in this podcast. Do many priests and bishops feel that religion is a money-making scam? Does a lack of self-esteem predispose people to believe in a religion? Does religion offer a sense of control? If I say my prayers, my sick relative won't die. Do people commit to religion believing it's the best way to be good or the only way to be good? How does leaving religion affect your psychological health and relationships? Where will the church be in 20 or 30 years time? Is leaving religion like looking through the looking glass? Do former believers undergo a baptism of fire into humanism? How can you know that you are right to abandon your religion? Is it therapeutic writing about the experience of transitioning from belief to unbelief? These are among the many fascinating questions which were asked recently at a live event. It was the launch of my memoir In My Gut I Don't Believe. It was chaired by Eamon Murphy. Let's get straight into it. We take a few questions from your guests this evening and then maybe we can go Good back to start off with, uh, with you, Gareth. Thanks, Eamon. Joe, a question as to what you think. Um, I used to believe that I was an atheist or a humanist and that all of the believers were firm believers. More recently, I've come to the conclusion that the hierarchy know, it, or many of them know, it's all a complete scam, a money-making scam, and that they're too deeply embedded in it to reject it and too comfortable in their positions. And that... They know damn well that the whole thing is is based on nonsense. Would you agree with any or all of that? Uh, well, I agree with some of I mean, I wrote a piece in, in the Sunday Times several years ago, and I interviewed active priests and ministers who did not believe. And like, I do know, you know, I, I'm part of a, a group, the clergy project, where everybody in that group is either a current or a former professional religious person. So they're, you know, of the different denominations, so there's Catholic and so on. But several of them are current active ministers or priests, and they are atheists, but they are financially dependent on their job and, and they're trapped and they're looking for a way out, but it isn't so easy. To be fair, though, I think a lot of priests are genuine believers. I mean, I was with the Maris Fathers and, you know, I have the height of respect for them, great affection for them. Like Dennis Green, for example, was my spiritual director and he was hugely important in my life. He was a believer, but you are right. There isn't a kind of a monopoly, if you like, or an agreed set of stuff. Like they have the creed, but in reality, they have their own personal theologies, I think, very often. But to be fair, I think that's also true for humanists. I think there are as many atheologies as there are theologies. Humanists differ on so many things. And likewise, priests and religious people will differ on many things too. But I wouldn't doubt the sincerity really of, of any of them. I don't think I don't think there are too many of them who are just blatant, duplicitous people. I don't even know if any of them are. Thanks, Dara. We'll take questions kind of one at a time from the people who have their hands up. But I just I know that before uh, Gabriel and Kieran and Liz got in there, Dave had unmuted himself, and so too Maraid and Teresa to kind of signify that they wanted to get in there. So we'll we'll go to Dave first, then Maraid and Teresa, and then we'll go to the uh, people who have their hand raised. So I don't want to miss out on anybody. Dave, fire ahead. Hi, sorry. Um, not really a question, more um, Joe. I am full of full of admiration for your honesty in this searing honesty. I could never do it, and I. 
for the praise for you. Thank you, you are fantastic for doing it. I could never begin to do it. Were you afraid of that honesty coming out? Afraid doesn't, doesn't touch it. I was terrified. I, I think that's why it took me 25 years to write the book. Because, you know, I thought, will I fictionalize it? Will I change all the names? Will I set it in America? And eventually I kind of thought, my agent said to me way back, you're holding back. And she was right. And I kind of thought, you know what? The only way to do this is as, an, as a memoir, name names and primarily me. And to be upfront and honest. And again, it's because of my belief that when you're personal, you're universal. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, Dave. Uh, Mairead. Hi, thanks. Uh, hi, Joe. You're only a few years older than me. And you were describing my childhood as well. You know, the, the routine, the seasonality almost of Catholicism and so on in our childhood. When I was in my early 20s, I was training as a student nurse. And that's where I had my start of my departure from my belief when um, a little three-year-old child that we were nursing died and the mother wanted a particular prayer that was up on the ward to be read at the little ceremony in the hospital and our chaplain said no that would not be suitable and to my mind if a bereaved mother would ask me to stand on my head and sing Dixie I would do anything for her to help her grief and that was the start of my my moving away you know and seeing a realer life if you want a better English. And I wonder, is it lack of fullness in somebody's life that makes them reach so strongly for religion? Or is it sense of control? You know, if I say my prayers, my sick relative won't die. What do you think? I don't know. I mean, looking back, I, I can only answer for myself. And I know that a huge part of why I was there was I, I just didn't think much of myself. And I thought, well, because I don't, this recurring phrase comes up in, in the memoir, you know, it's the best place for me. And when I use that phrase in, in Novitiate, it's the best place for me, I thought, it's the best place for me in a, in a very positive way. But those very same words, it's the best place for me, can also be said in a very self denigrating kind of way, it's the best place for me, mm. you know. And because I genuinely, I'm looking over here at my missus who's put up with me for 28 years. But, you know, I just I just didn't believe that any woman would ever, you know, want to spend their life with me. So that was part of it. Like kind of if, if that's your starting point, and I think that somehow was a feeling I had from my experiences in my family. If that's where you're coming from, then you think, well, how can I make something of my life when I feel so bad about myself? And then the idea of religion, perhaps, oh, OK, so I have a role and I have a meaning and the church has thought all of this through. And, and of course, they're right because they're infallible and they're going to do my thinking for me and they're going to give me my meaning. Thanks, Joe. Um, just before Teresa can say what you're going to say, um, I just noticed, Joe, that I didn't see him earlier. I didn't see his name on the list, but your brother is in the room. So just in case. Where's Paul? Oh, he doesn't have the video on. Paul Armstrong, put on your video for a minute. He's probably watching telly pretending to be here. <laughs> anyway, in case he missed it earlier, Paul, Paul has a big birthday tomorrow. So could we all, in case he's looking, can we all just do this for Paul? He's got a big roundy birthday tomorrow. Happy birthday, Paul. Thank you, Amy. Um, Teresa, fire ahead there. Oh, Paul, one second. I think Paul has unmuted himself there. Has he? I think I thought he had unmuted himself there for a second. But sure. He might have run away. You have the floor now, Teresa. Okay. First of all, Joe, thanks very much for this book. I think it's a really important book because it gives an explanation of what was happening in Ireland for people who didn't live through it because young people now will not believe how things were in the Ireland. Now, I'm a bit older than, than you, but I read the book and I reviewed it on the book depository, which is where I buy most of my book or some of my books at the moment. But I 
in the beginning of your first reading there, I want to go back to that, because apart from what I consider the coercive control that was going on with you and the other guys in the seminary, you said something that sort of resonated with me at the the beginning of your first reading. You said you were an, an idealistic teenager who wanted to do good, who wanted to make some meaning in his life. And I think, you know, you said the person is universal. That's true, because I was the same kind of teenager. I wanted to do something good. But at the time in Ireland... The way you could do something good, there wasn't an awful lot of avenues open to you. So the church was one way. And I know I was recruited for the convent, but I escaped because I had discovered a boyfriend at that stage. But I started doing the something good by setting up a branch of the Legion of Mary in my town and ended up complaining the parish priest to the bishop. But what saved me was feminism, that at the time I was doing all that, I discovered the women's movement. And not only did I discover that you could do good without God, but the people who believed in that God were oppressing women all over the world. Now, do you think that that drive to do good, because I know you and I know the good you do now and that, you know, the kind of life you lead, but that drive to do good and the seeing that the only way you could do it was becoming a priest or was the best way you could do it. And that was, you were kind of brainwashed into that from being very young. The only people who were doing good, of course, anybody who wasn't Catholic wasn't. So the only way you could do good and aspire to the things, and especially I see what you wanted to do in Northern Ireland, that you were thinking that becoming a priest, having that mission would be the only way. Nowadays, you would volunteer for, you know, there's so many avenues that are open to young people. Do you think that was um, a motive? It was, you know, it was a genuine motive, you know, like there were good motives for joining the seminary. Mm-hmm. And and then just a lot of them fell apart because you thought it's just not adding up. And, you know, I did, as you mentioned, I was passionately committed to this idea of reconciliation. Like, What is the biggest need in Ireland? What's the biggest need in Ireland? It's not teaching kids in a the school. There are oodles of teachers, lay teachers. Why be celibate to be a teacher? It's ridiculous. You know, why would I do all of that suffering and loneliness and longing and all that stuff to teach English and French or whatever it might be? It's, I, I just thought it was stupid. And, and I'd gone to a Christian Brothers school, you know, and I would never have dreamt of becoming a Christian brother simply because, well, why would you do it to teach? So, yes, I wanted to do something good. I thought the most important thing to do in life was to work on, well, what's the meaning of life? You know, to be with people like Teresa, you're a celebrant too, at birth and marriage and death, you know, to offer meaning to people. And the church seemed to me to offer that meaning, the meaning that everybody around me believed in. And like you, you and I and others are still doing that work, but devoid of the religious artifice. What I love about what we do as humanist celebrants is that we're, we are with people in their, you know, at these hugely important moments in their lives, birth, death, marriage, and, and we're helping them as best we can, but only as fellow human beings, not saying, oh, we're in touch with God and God is telling it, you know. So, yeah, the search for meaning was certainly a huge part of my good motivation to join. Thanks. Thanks, Joan. Thanks, Teresa. Uh, Gabriel. Hey there, Joe. Gabriel, how are you? Throughout those years leading up to you leaving the seminary, um, I'm just wondering, how did all of that pressure weigh on your, how did it manifest itself in terms of your, you know, psychological and, and physical health? And did it? And secondly, when your family and friends, how did they, re- did they react better than you would have thought? when you left first part of the question <laughs> i'm going to cheat you really kind of have to read the book to get that because that right. the book goes into all of that okay 
how did other people react? Like my mother, honestly, I never knew from day one whether she was happy I was joined the seminary or not. And I knew for a fact that at one point she actually wanted me to leave after my dad died to look after her. So I, I might not have been typical in that sense that you often get this sort of stereotypical guy is going, he's got his mother's vocation. It wasn't that kind of thing. And it wasn't, oh my God, you can't. Like they used to use the phrase spoiled priest if somebody left the shame of it. That was probably something for maybe 10, 20 years before my time. How did people react? I remember thinking in 1985 when I thought I was leaving and it was such a big moment of crisis in my life. I remember being astonished at the ease with which Dennis Green, who was my spiritual director, says, oh, okay. And, you know, maybe you need to go off and discover something new, find something that some experience you didn't have with her. And I thought this is so much easier than I thought it was going to be. But then he went off and talked to another priest and then he came back with, you know, totally changed his mind and no, you should stay. And this is God's work and you're, it's wrong to leave. OK, thank you, Joe. We want to give you a pause for a moment, Joe, because uh, Trevor Gives has said, well done to you. Can't wait to get the book and he'd love to hear an audio book as well. Kieran O'Sullivan, do you want to ask your question? Thank you very much, Eamon. Can you hear me OK? Indeed. Joe. Kieran. Heartiest congratulations, Joe, on, on, on a magnificent book. I've, I've purchased it before Christmas, read it to cover, from cover to cover, almost in the one sitting. And uh, brilliant. I thought it was, as, as I have said to you, a wonderfully warm account of your younger years and the journey that you went through through the ecclesi- ecclesiastical life. I thought it was a brilliant read, very inspirational and written by a very brave, thoughtful and decent man. So well done on that. I've been piecing a couple of things together, Joe, based on what I've heard you talk about over the last couple of times I've met you. And I've realized I'm five years older than you. I went to the same school as you. Wow. Yeah. So I had five years on you in the school. And I can agree with a previous speaker there and and your good self that said it was very much an all-embracing Catholicism back in those days. Uh, almost to the point of of suffocation. It was Catholic everything. I, like you, we went to Mass. There was throngs of people went to Mass. Uh, My most abiding memory of Mass back then when I was a a youngster would be the amount of people that were coughing in Mass, something that we don't see in in the latter days as such. But but I'll give you a laugh. I I remember whilst being in school, I could have only been about 10 or 11, and we we had learned the creed as, as, as every student does back or did back in those days. And it went as follows. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And I remember asking the Christian brother that was teaching me, where, where did God live before he created heaven? <laughs> that was a no-no. I shouldn't have asked that question. So I was seriously re- realigned thereafter. But my question to you tonight, Joe, is g- g- given the experience you have had in, in the church and things like that, where, where do you see the church in 20, 30 years' time? Where, where, where do you see the end game for it, if at all? Oh. Well, it's hard to know. I mean, as I said, I for the Marath Fathers, right, they sold their seminary. It's about to be demolished, the place where I lived. So when I was there in the 1980s, the question was there, are religious congregations heading for extinction? I mean, the word extinction was used and it seemed like, ah. But, you know, 17 of the 20 who joined with me have left. And now most of them are pretty elderly. And extinction is really happening. And it, it, it's actually sad. I mean, maybe some people I know who 
be delighted to get rid of them. But, uh, you know, I have a, a, an affection for them and I learned and gained so much from it. So how, where's, where's it going? Like religions, we, well, certainly me as a Catholic, I thought this was, you know, this was the truth, the religion, the one God. But there have been so many religions over the years. I mean, 2000 years is nothing in human history. It's nothing. And there are like tens of thousands of religions out there. People don't believe in the Celtic gods anymore. They don't believe in the Nordic gods anymore. They don't believe in the, the uh, Latin gods, the Greek gods. They're all in the past. And I imagine that sooner or later, it will be the same with Christianity and Islam. It'll be, it'll go. But then, so so I think will humanism and, you know, so will any ism. But hopefully we'll have humanity left and humans searching for meaning. Yeah, thank you. Uh, Liz. Yeah, so um, I just wanted to say a couple of things. One, I'm about the same age as you when I grew up in Limerick. I kind of left Limerick about the same time as you went into the seminary to do science in Trinity. And it was quite easy as a woman, actually. I'm just thinking, listening to you. It was actually quite easy as a woman to reject the Catholic Church because they said about alienating us anyway. And then when you start to be a scientist, you kind of go, well, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound right. So I haven't read your book, Joe, and I will read it after this. Um, it sounds really interesting. But the, the second piece question I have is I'm a huge fan of John O'Donoghue and his poems. And he talks about Master Eckhart and his definition of the soul. And um, you talked at the start about saving souls. And I just wonder, is there, he talks about the soul being that inner core of you that different things can touch like music or, or poetry or art or, or whatever it happens to be. And I'm wondering, is humanism and being a humanist celebrant and apologies I'm not long a humanist I'm, I'm just here about six months now but is there in in being a celebrant are you actually still doing that piece of touching people's souls when you're at the births and the marriages and the deaths that you talk about yeah I actually love the word soul I don't have a problem with the word soul I think it's great like I love soulmate no, Ruth is my soulmate. And I think it's a lovely, lovely, lovely word. So I suppose it's just another word for kind of the essence of a particular person, who they are at their core. So what I love, if I'm conducting a ceremony, I just, you know, it's just lovely when you have a, maybe a small intimate gathering for a baby naming or for a kids who are doing a kind of a civil equivalent to a confirmation. And you kind of, maybe they cry and you kind of think, God, people don't cry at baptisms. Well, maybe they do, but I never saw anybody crying at a baptism. But a baby naming, it just, it's, it can often get people crying, you know, or just a, a wedding, a godless wedding happily. And it can just get to people and touch them. And, you know, I, I, did, I did a funeral once and there was so much laughter at the funeral. And it was, it was a good laughter. It was a happy laughter. So I think all of that is connecting with the soul, the essence of humanity. We're, like I'm still doing what I set out to do when I joined the Marists. And I'm doing that in my writing and insofar as I do ceremonies, trying to connect with what it means most to be human and to be together and to love and to suffer and to die and all that kind of stuff. Great summation of what you do there, Joe. Thanks, Joe. <laughs> uh, David McKnight, the question. Hello, Joe. It's it's great to see you in real life, as it were, uh, and outside the book. Although I've really got to admit that you you've got me reading for the first time for years, <laughs> really. Uh, and I do recognise the power of the written word. My speciality within humanism is science, and uh, because I've been plugging you, uh, can I just plug Humanist for Science, which I run on Facebook, and 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 pleased to have Joe's endorsement of that. But my question really is about um, how you feel now you've been through these experiences 
And I wonder if it feels a bit like going through the looking glass or have you had a baptism of fire into humanism? No, not really. I love that image, though, of, and I use it in the book, of walking through glass. You know, I remember in my last sort of six months sometime, I literally had that experience of walking through glass. Ruthie, could you get me that? And it's, it's the image that's used for the, the column in the Irish Freethinker, which was the origin, really, of my book in, in, in its current form. I just had this experience of, you know, you have you have these constructs and beliefs. That's the image that's used. And my son drew it. But he actually walks through the glass with ease. It's also like the bird escaping from a cage that you have all. I had I had these constraints, which I got from my family. I got from my church. And you kind of think that's it. You can't go beyond there. And then I found myself the weeks and months before I left the seminary having this sense of liberation. I can just walk through, because it's actually not real glass. It's like the glass ceiling, but it's like, it's just an imaginary, it's a mirage. It's not really there. And I think often people, when they, you know, they have this fear of God. Some people's view of God is so horrible. And you kind of think, well, walk out, out of that concept and see if you'd be struck dead by lightning. Guess what? You won't be. And, you know, if there's any, I often have a better view of a potential God than believers because I say, well, you do that. And I think, well, if your God really loves you, what difficulty could he share it have if in your essence, you don't believe in him? You just don't believe in him. Like what God worth believing in or following could possibly have a problem with you being true to yourself? I think we've got the feminists to thank for the concept of glass ceiling. Thank you, David. And yeah, Humanists for Science, great group. So if you're on Facebook, Join Humanists for Science. Thank you. Dermot Cronin, you're up next. So I am. Uh, so again, I suppose uh, when we reading many books, kind of a touch also, not necessarily about humanism, but I, I was a great lover of Tolstoy and quite surprised then when I re- read his A.M. Wilson's biography. I've been trying to write it out here. Roughly what he said uh, was that basically when he took that religion, he basically he felt that abandoning his religion was like what, what walking out into the Russian winter snow Without a, without a coat. Uh, so I'm just wondering to Joe, I mean, it's such a pillar of wisdom as as, um, as Tolstoy found it very difficult to abandon his religion. Uh, just wondering to Joe, um, at what stage, Joe, were you, did you feel you were absolutely right? You know, because th- there comes a line, you're absolutely on one side, you're absolutely on the other. At what, how long did it take you to be absolutely right that you felt you were absolutely right to abandon your religion? To be honest, it wasn't a sense of being absolutely right. For me, like right up to the end of my nine years, you know, I actually could have stayed. Like maybe I couldn't have stayed. Maybe ultimately I just couldn't have stayed. But the argument to stay, to believe or to leave and to not believe were almost in equal measure. And I had this difficulty because I fluctuated. Somebody else would say, like in 1985, I was persuaded to stay. Sorry, I'm losing my train of thought because I wanted to say something. Just say your, can you say your question again, please? Sorry, I was just saying that if a, if someone like a pillar of a pillar of wisdom, like Tolstoy, found it very difficult. Oh yeah, to, sorry, I've got to, it. To, to, I've, it, I've, it was I've, a cloak. He was it was a cloak in the snow. He he didn't want to walk out in the Russian winter yeah. against no, all the vagaries of life without this cloak around him. H- how do you feel that? As I say, it. It's a bit like there's a line that you said, right? I suppose like myself, and I, I love the title you're referring in my gut, I don't believe, but there's between in the gut and this thing, right? I, I'm absolutely comfortable now, but I, I, and I don't know if I, when I cross the line, but for someone like yourself who's so educated and the formation has been such, 
how difficult it is for you. you. You are also a pillar of wisdom. So how difficult it is that wisdom to cross the line. What I wanted to say, and, and it's kind of, it was at the heart of my insight, which was, it, it was doubt, right? When I just did not know, do I go this way? Do I go that way? Because the arguments are strong either way. And it was, yeah, I was trying to, well, what is real? What is real for me? And it was that experience. Well, do you know what? Doubt is real for me. Doubt is real for me. And that's why I have, like of all the thousands of, of quotes you could put at the start of a book, the, the epigraph is, if you would be a real seeker after truth, it is necessary that at least once in your life you doubt as far as possible all things, René Descartes. And it was that experience of doubt that I thought, well, do you know what? I can, I can see that argument and I can see that argument. But one thing I know for absolute certainty, and this is the only, because I think you use the phrase absolute certainty, Dermot. And I realized what I know with absolute certainty is that I doubt. And all the stuff of revealed religion, well, how can I know if that's true? But I do know I doubt. And I, I, and, and that experience of doubt, I said, right, I'm going to build my life from that. And when I did counselling, I did counselling last six months, and the counsellor was superb. And she got me to respect my doubt, my perceptions, my feelings, my understanding, my judgment, my decision. And that even if the entire world says I'm wrong, well, do you know what? I'm going to go with my decision. And like in 1985, I wasn't strong enough to do that. And it sort of took me to 1989, nine years on, to be strong enough to say, do you know what? I don't care if the Pope himself came in, knelt down in front of me, I'd still go. I'm going because I don't believe it. And that's the last bit I didn't read out was, no, where I, I had to, I was forced by the counselor in this moment, right now, in this moment, how do you feel? I don't know. I don't know. And I could see every, yeah, but right now, the second. And I thought, in my gut, you know, she was asking me, how do you feel in your gut? And it was terrifying to make that absolutely terrifying. What? You mean my identity, my future life, my income, my everything, my whole worldview, to decide that simply on my gut. And in my gut, I had doubt to build my life on that. Scary as heck. But that was my absolute certainty, doubt. I'm glad uh, we, we got to that part, Joe, because I, I hope you don't mind keeping the discussion going. No, no, keep it going. It's stuff still about all the way from Sligo, Europe. Yeah, thank you, Joe. Can you hear me? I can. Yeah. Um, I haven't read your book yet, but I'm looking forward to reading it. You've nearly answered the question, but I'd just like you to go into a bit more detail about how you experienced this feeling of non-belief in your gut. You know, we can talk about the gut as a second brain, so we, the gut has a certain intelligence. But, you know, I, I'd like to hear your description of what that experience was in your gut. It was it was literally physical. It was physical. Like I mean, she asked me this question. She just persisted. It's a bit, I'm not going to read. So you're going to have to read the book and, and, and read that section. But it's a section I, I didn't read out, but it is the kind of climax of the book. So it's section 94. And like literally you have, the council was there in front of me and she was saying, right this minute, do you believe? Do you believe you have a vocation? And, for, and by the way, for me, it wasn't even a vocation. I, I kind of thought, well, it's not just do you believe you have a, vo a vocation. To me, it was like, do you believe it or do you think it's all a load of nonsense? The whole thing, the whole religion thing. And yeah, she just right now, this minute. And literally, I like I visualized my gut and I became aware of my gut. And I thought, well, like, if I had to decide this minute and, you know, the planet exploded the next minute, if I just had to decide and decide on my gut, in my gut, my God, I don't believe. And that's why that that is, I mean, you know, people have suggested to me that I should have called it Dare to Me Me, but really the title is the right title. In my God, I don't believe. Because it took me so bloody long to realise that in my God, I don't believe. And 
when you know that for certainty, when you when you can base your life on the absolute certainty you have is that you doubt, then you can build your life. Joe, I see your brother Paul has unmuted himself. I just wonder, does he want to does he want to say hello? Paul, where are you? How are you, brother? Hello, Paul. How are you doing? We can barely hear you now. You sound like you're down the oh, bottom of a well. Wait, man. How are you? Not too bad. You don't look like you're going to have a roundy birthday tomorrow. No, I'm not. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have a great birthday, and I might have a chance. Good for you. Why wouldn't you? But, uh, all I want to say is I'm very proud of you, brother. Thank you, Paul. I really am. You know, I'm proud of you. Obviously, you didn't do it on your own. That, that lady beside you has a lot to do with it, too. Listen, so. nothing good in my life would have happened without Ruth. Nothing good. I couldn't have written this book. I couldn't have... Words failing me. That's, that's unusual. I know. Thank you, Paul. I'm really, really proud of you. Thank you. I wish you I could be with you tomorrow. The old fella be proud of you too. Good to hear. Thank you. That's all I have to say. Thanks very much, Paul. Niall Mulligan, I to ask your question. Thanks, Eamon. How are you, Joe? Um, we go back. Hello, Niall. How are you? I'm good. Yeah, we know each other a long time um, and very good friends. And I've never spent an hour and a half in your company without asking you some question or other. So can't Or we... beating me at chess. Or beating you at chess. Yeah, this is true. <laughs> Listen, I was tr- struck by what Dave said earlier on, the question in terms of honesty. And what the, I mean, I've read your book and um, one thing that struck it, because we do know each other really, really well, but it also reminded me of how much we don't know about each other. Not just me and you, but people in general. Um, and that honesty piece really came out. And it struck me that the book, apart from, I mean, it's about many things, but like, I mean, the question, I suppose, is like, and you don't have to answer this question, but um, I mean, what was it also like an almost an extension of that sort of like counseling therapy? Was it like, was it therapeutic for you to write the book? And if it was, has it opened up areas for you that you still need that maybe are challenging or maybe they're strengths? Like it's so it's a because it's a very, very personal book. Um, so that's that's my question which we can answer over a pint at some stage when the pandemic's gone as well if we could ever have a pint again wouldn't that be good <laughs> now give it to me again okay so in in terms of writing the book th- there's so much honesty in the book that is it a form of therapy was it therapeutic for you to write that book yeah i can tell you niall that yes it was therapeutic it really was i mean writing do my journaling without that mm. i couldn't have written the book so i always find journaling very therapeutic you know it does all the things that prayer was meant to do for me a journal today it grounds me and often I'd write something in, in my journal and I think well this is a private journal nobody but nobody is ever going to see that and so making the decision to make that deal with the reader that I will actually you know I'm not going to be vague I'm going to say this is what's going on these are my feelings these, these are things that happened to me just that was a deal I made with the reader, reader and yeah it was good for me you know and and I'm <laughs> I was just so incredibly proud. Like when it was published in December, I thought I can die now happy. You know, I've I've told my truth. So I feel like, and I, I would, other things I've done that I'm very proud of, but in terms of writing, I would, I would let it all, all the rest of it burn. Although there's loads that I love to say that book. I think that's what makes the book. It's that honesty piece that makes the book. And you should be very proud of it. Thank you, Niall. I'd be even prouder though if I could ever beat you on the chessboard, but that's never going to happen. Well, that'll be another day, Joe. So. <laughs> Can I just thank Eamon? Because Eamon has been a midwife, but you have been a midwife for this book because you read the early columns that appeared in the Irish Freethinker. And having labored, labored, <laughs> I'm doing laboring, you're doing the mid- midwifery, but having labored with this book for literally 25 years, you know, at times you think, oh, it'll never be published, or I, I don't know how to write, or whatever. And your encouragement. 
and your feedback and your enthusiasm was essential. So I want to thank you for that. I have to thank me, Mrs. Ruth. But I also want to thank everybody who's here. I really do. Thank you so much for being here. And um, and even if you don't buy or read the book, I would love if you each left this room thinking for yourselves, I shall dare to be me. I think that's a perfect spot to finish up on. Thank you, Joe. You're, you're a very easy interview. And uh, I think I think Teresa Graham hit on it very well earlier. She pointed out the extent to which many of the social changes that have happened in Ireland the last few decades provide very important backdrops for your story. And you said it yourself, 20 young men entered the novitiate with you in 1980. All but three eventually left either before or after ordination. And I've, I've no doubt that to some extent your story is theirs too. And that's a very important aspect of the recent history of this country, mm. recent social change. Read this book. You'll be entertained and a wiser person for it. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you all for coming this evening. Thank you very much. I know it's not in person, but if we were in person, I'm sure we'd all give them all a big clap. Yeah. <laughs> I'd expect I'd expect a big hug from you, daughter. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Sarah. And George. Here's Joe. See you soon. Thank you. In my gut, I don't believe a memoir by Joe Armstrong is now available on Amazon. Please consider supporting our podcast at patreon.com forward slash losing my religion. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash losing my religion. And thank you to my first patron, Gareth Ferris. Thank you, Gareth. Thank you for listening to Losing My Religion. If you'd like to contact me, you can do so at podcast losing my religion at gmail.com or on Twitter at losing my religion one that's at losing my religion or elig and the figure one talk to you soon meanwhile trust your doubt happy days <laughs> <laughs>